Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Caroline Annis filling in for Michael Annis, who is sick today. You are listening to episode number 433 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Crashdown. With all hope gone, of keeping Skylab in space, NASA controllers maintained Skylab in a low-drag attitude from January through the first week of March 1979. During this period, political and protocol considerations shaped the management of the re-entry process. The station's orbit was not decaying rapidly, which limited the available options. The control team, aware of its responsibility, formulated a plan for review by NASA headquarters. They initially examined Skylab's variable orbit as it circumnavigated the Earth. Certain orbits traversed heavily populated regions, while others primarily passed over water and deserts. By utilizing a population density map provided by the Department of Defense, they calculated the population beneath Skylab's trajectory for each orbit. Prior to Skylab's launch, NASA developed an analysis to estimate the chances of people being struck by debris during its re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. The analysis forecasted how Skylab might break up during re-entry, determining how much of its bulk would survive and potentially hit the Earth's surface. At the end of mission, Skylab weighed approximately 173,000 pounds, with an expected survival rate of about 50,000 pounds during re-entry. Combining the two analyses, NASA calculated an average chance of 1 in 152 that someone could be struck by debris. However, Certain orbits presented a significantly lower risk, with a probability much less than one-tenth of that average. These orbits passed over southern Canada, swept southeast over the Atlantic, skimmed just south of the tip of Africa, and then ascended up the Pacific and Indian Oceans to cross Australia. 
The orbits then continued across the Coral Sea and Pacific Ocean, eventually reaching North America again. Now, if re-entry could be precisely timed to occur east of North America and west of Australia on one of these orbits, Skylab could be safely disposed of with minimal risk to inhabited areas. The plan was to put Skylab back into its standard solar inertia, high drag attitude, and closely monitor the effect of drag on its altitude and re-entry point. The station would then be positioned in an attitude that allowed its solar arrays to face the sun. This orientation would help keep the batteries charged and enable the controllers in Houston to maintain some control as long as possible. As altitude decreased and drag increased, maintaining solar inertia would be impossible, and asymmetric drag would cause Skylab to spin out of control. However, Hans Kennel and his team at the Astrionics Laboratory had developed torque equilibrium attitude, a variation that perfectly balanced all the forces. The point of no return would be reached at 75 miles altitude. At that point, controllers would command Skylab to turn off its control moment gyros, causing it to tumble immediately. The known lower drag of the tumbling configuration would result in a predictable entry location. By varying the attitude at tumble time, the team believed they could adjust re-entry to place Skylab on one of the five good orbits for that day. Charlie Harlan, the head of the Skylab re-entry flight control team, recalled, quote, Another hero was Richard Brown, a Rockwell contractor engineer. He figured out how much power we would need to perform each maneuver and what attitudes would achieve it. Since our power margins were very small, we would call Richard in whenever we were planning an attitude change. End quote. But NASA's headquarters struggled to reach a consensus on the plan. One faction was hesitant to convey the impression that NASA had complete control over the situation, fearing that any potential setbacks could lead to significant criticism and blame. Charlie Harlan continued, quote, This was the God faction. They basically did not want to do anything so they could blame it on God. But I'm a deist. I believe God puts us on earth with certain capabilities and expects us to do our best. My team and I were ready and pretty optimistic. End quote. Ultimately, the headquarters approval came through. John Yardley, acting as an intermediary between JSC and the NASA administrator, gave the green light for the plan to proceed. Harlan recalled telling Chris Kraft this and Chris saying, quote, Charlie, you got your answer. Hang up the phone and don't answer it again, End quote. In response to the insistence of headquarters, predictions of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, regarding re-entry were used instead of NASA's, with the goal of having a single official source. The NASA team strongly believed 
in the superiority of their prediction, citing their in-depth knowledge of vehicle configuration and drag. Furthermore, in June, the NASA prediction was approximately two days ahead of the NORAD one. Harlan said, quote, We knew the predictions would converge as we got close, but the media really wanted to be here for the big event, so we told them unofficially, if you don't want to miss it, get set up a couple of days early, end quote. Headlines in the June 5th edition of the Huntsville Times reported that, quote, NASA chief Robert Frosch is chided for Skylab's fall. When asked where he would be at the time of Skylab's return, Frosch said that if not at NASA headquarters, he would probably be at a barbecue in his backyard, end quote. Congressman Robert Walker, a Republican from Pennsylvania, expressed surprise that no one had considered informing the public about what to do in an emergency. NASA General Counsel Neil Hosenball acknowledged that their organization was slow to react and develop clear communication strategies for public alerts. Prior to Skylab's ultimate demise, the public offered NASA a plethora of suggestions, such as <laughs> fill a robot plane with TNT and crash into it, or shoot a missile at it. Among these, and numerous letters received by William O'Donnell, NASA's Director of Public Information, was one that particularly stood out and required careful consideration. The suggestion involved astronauts attaching helium-filled balloons, allowing Skylab to float into outer space. Now, each letter was responded to, and this last proposal presented a significant challenge in crafting an appropriate response. In New York, a restaurant extended an invitation to partake in a unique dining experience centered around a celestial-themed cocktail dubbed Skylab. Two of these, and you won't know what hit you. At Cape Canaveral, an enormous baseball mitt was constructed specifically to capture the station. In Kansas, a radio station offered $9,800 for a piece of the station. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, beanie hats with propellers and t-shirts featuring a large X were sold with the words, Hit Me. Amidst the humorous remarks, some speculated that wearing such attire could provide protection, deeming it unlikely that the government possessed the accuracy to strike its intended targets. From California, a psychic inexplicably obtained Harlan's home phone number. She called Harlan multiple times, making predictions. When Harlan inquired about the source of her knowledge, she replied, Numerology. However, after predicting an impact on Dover, Delaware, she ceased all contact, never calling again. During this period, the press was having a field day due to the dire situation. In Washington, D.C., some individuals established the Chicken Little Society, a humorous response to the circumstances. Bumper stickers with slogans like, Chicken Little was right, and Good to the Last Drop became popular, along with t-shirts and contests featuring the same theme. The New York Times took a more serious approach, offering a sobering critique of NASA's handling of the situation. Meanwhile, 
Officials in England provided practical advice, suggested that staying indoors could offer protection from the smaller debris falling from the sky. Owen Garriott recalled, quote, I was greatly amused and annoyed by what I consider to be a gross overreaction by the press and criticism of NASA. I had an interview request from one of the Houston press about it. I noted that I, we, did not invite him to drive down to our community, and since he did, he was exposing our children to a greater risk of being hit by his car than we at NASA were exposing his family of being hit by Skylab during reentry. That was not too well received and did not make it to print. The statistics were simple and required some estimation, but I believe they were true. End quote. As Skylab's controlled reentry became imminent, the global media eagerly reported bizarre and catastrophic predictions of the impending disaster and the possibility of debris raining down from the sky. BBC TV news segments highlighted opportunists attempting to profit by selling construction worker hard hats to concerned citizens. Additionally, many countries worldwide were convinced that Skylab was hurling towards their territory, heightening their anxiety. By July 4th, controllers anticipated the space station's reentry for July 10th or 11th. They planned to trigger end-over-end tumbling once Skylab reached an altitude of 87 miles, enabling a more accurate reentry forecast. British Airways say they may delay their flights as America's Skylab space station falls to Earth in the next 36 hours. Some countries say they'll stop all their flights as Skylab comes down, but the chances of it hitting anyone are said to be very remote. Tonight's check on the 85 tons of Skylab shows that the space lab's less than 120 miles up and will fall out of the sky late tomorrow or early on Wednesday. Skylab's next close approach to Britain will be at half past 11 tomorrow morning. It'll cross the Scillies and Guernsey. Our science editor, Peter Fairley, assesses the chances of anyone being hit by Skylab. If anyone sold you a hat to stop bits of Skylab falling on your head, and several thousand have been sold in America, you've probably wasted your money. The team of British scientists who've been tracking Skylab for ITN now predict it won't fall on Britain. There were fears that it might hit Cornwall, but its orbit now is taking it further south. But it will fall somewhere, because what goes up must come down. And according to the North American Air Defense Command, who are using computers to plot its descent second by second, 90% of the world's population, that's 4 billion people, are theoretically at risk. The dying moments of Skylab are expected to occur somewhere along a line 50 degrees either side of the equator. The 85-ton spaceship, the biggest thing ever put into space, will begin to disintegrate as it hits really thick air layers. The friction will build up until the whole thing has turned into a fireball. Two questions remain. What bits will reach the ground and survive re-entry, and will they hit anyone or anything? NASA tonight put the odds at 152 to 1 against, but nevertheless they've got lawyers standing by in case of mishaps and court claims. There are eight bits which may reach the ground, six oxygen tanks weighing more than a ton each and made of titanium, one lead-lined film vault weighing nearly two tons, and the biggest piece of all, 
the fixed airlock shroud, 22 feet long, made of aluminium and weighing two and a quarter tons. All these are likely to hit the Earth at 260 miles an hour. So what are the chances of it hitting land? Well, NASA has one card up its sleeve. The small maneuvering engines aboard Skylab still have some fuel left in them. And in the final stages, if computers predict that the debris seems destined to land on populated regions, scientists at Houston will try to fire the whole lot together and push Skylab into an ocean. We won't know until the last two hours. On July 9, 1979, headquarters opened the Skylab Coordination Center to keep everyone informed. In Australia, the approaching Skylab reentry drew attention in headlines. The Sydney Sun front page featured a prominent three-line, two-inch tall headline in bold letters, Skylab on Australian Crash Course. The article reported that American authorities had stated, quote, Skylab is on a crash course that could result in debris falling upon southwestern Australia, end quote. However, it was still possible for the spacecraft to re-enter Earth's atmosphere during any of its final 12 orbits, some of which would pass over Sydney. The State Emergency Service of Western Australia initiated a full alert in response to these concerns. Director D.L. Hill remarked, quote, All we have heard are rumors, end quote. The Sydney Daily Mirror published a headline, Skylab Zero, Hour Near. This was placed above another article's headline which read, But here's some down-to-earth good news. $10 per week tax cut plan. On July 10th, reentry was predicted for the subsequent day on a trajectory traversing southern Canada, the eastern coast of the United States, and a vast expanse of open ocean before passing over Australia and the Pacific Ocean. There were indications that if the planned tumbling maneuver was initiated as planned, the debris footprint might encroach on the United States. As a result, it was decided to initiate the tumbling maneuver earlier with the intent of directing the station approximately 800 miles southeast of Cape Town, South Africa, away from shipping routes and halfway between the U.S. and Australia. Landing space station Skylab still has the experts guessing just when and where it'll fall to Earth. The latest reckoning is it'll come down at 5 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, somewhere over the South Atlantic, west of Africa. But they told us tonight we could be five hours out either way. What can be said for certain is that the 85 tons of Skylab will pass over Cornwall, right over the Lizard Head, at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. If it were coming down at that time, and we stress that's pretty unlikely, debris could theoretically be strewn over the entire shaded area of this map. But the American Space Agency say they're reasonably confident that if Skylab looks like heading for land, they'll fire its engines to delay the fall until it's safely over water. In its last hour of existence on the 11th of July, a ground track of Skylab started from mid-Canada and moved easterly out into the North Atlantic. It then moved southeast into the South Atlantic, just as planned. Arlen and his team stood by as Skylab's re-entry trajectory appeared to be on the best orbit, but the predicted debris footprint was concerning. 
due to less drag resistance, heavier fragments would travel further, resulting in an enormous impact zone spanning nearly 4,000 miles in length and 100 miles in width. The western edge of this footprint threatened to overlap the U.S. East Coast. In response, the team initiated a tumbling maneuver while Skylab was just under 80 miles high. As anticipated, this action shifted the impact footprint eastward away from Canada and the U.S. Despite predictions, events seldom occur precisely as expected. The calculated breakup altitude of Skylab was based on its intended structural strength specifications. However, the actual vehicle was stronger than the specified strength requirements. In the heart of the Houston Control Center, Chris Kraft's focus was unwavering as he closely monitored the final minutes of Skylab's descent. However, the information he received took a drastic turn when NORAD's latest figures indicated that the station was not disintegrating, causing a shift in the reentry trajectory even further eastward. It became apparent that the station would not follow the predicted trajectory of falling south of Africa. Instead, it was heading on a concerning course toward a possible impact in Australia. In that instant, the implications hit Chris Craft and he urgently called for additional data, his voice resonating through the control room. NORAD predicted impact at 0 hours 37 minutes Eastern Daylight Time on July 12, 1979. Unfortunately, it was too late to alter the inevitable outcome. Skylab, enduring longer than predicted, passed south of the Cape of Good Hope and turned northeast. The spacecraft started disintegrating over the Indian Ocean and headed toward Australia. Soon after, during its re-entry through the Australian sky, the spacecraft created a spectacular sight for onlookers. The first report was received in Houston from an airline pilot stating something had passed him at 42,000 feet. The object resembling an aircraft with locked brakes emitted sparks as it passed 140 miles from Perth Airport. The pilot and passengers witnessed a remarkable visual phenomenon. Multiple fireballs transformed from a brilliant blue to an orangey-red hue as the debris broke up and descended through the atmosphere. Houston anxiously waited for further reports. A small community reported finding small fragments, prompting a collective sigh of relief among the controllers. In southwest Australia, a woman in Esperance witnessed Skylab's fall. She described it as a shower of sparkling lights similar to a rocket passing overhead without sound. Approximately half a minute later, there was a loud boom. In Esperance and neighboring towns, smaller pieces of the spacecraft scattered across tin roofs. Some of the more substantial fragments, like the film vault and the oxygen and nitrogen tanks, continued to fly toward the outback. Good evening. The remains of Skylab crashed to Earth at about half past five this evening. 
and a sizable proportion of them landed in Australia. The 77-ton space laboratory flew further than the Americans had hoped, and tonight it began breaking up over Western Australia, the end of its six-year voyage through space. Skylab overshot the favoured landing place, the Indian Ocean. Throughout the afternoon, the Americans predicted, predicted it would fall into the sea, but from half past five our time, reports began to come in that pieces had been seen passing over at least four Australian towns. And as time went on, it seemed likely that much of the wreckage had fallen into the Australian desert 500 miles further on. Tonight, two West Australian eyewitnesses described to Gavin Hewitt what they'd seen as the Skylab wreckage passed over. As it went through the air, I saw a main body of trailing fire, which was trailing fire behind it. There was a main centre which was glowing red and green flames, and fairly large pieces uh, departing away from it also burning up. How large did these pieces look? Oh, uh, <laughs> that'd be fairly hard to estimate. Uh, I would say the distance from where I saw it would be uh, at least 200 miles away, so I cannot give any estimates of, of, on the size. What actually happened was after it had passed about three or four, four minutes later, we got a series of uh, like sonic booms over the town, which was rather impressive. Uh, I think that was the most eer the eeriest part of the whole thing. The um, light, lights were rather spectacular, but the um, booms that followed, I suppose, were a little bit scary and eerie. Throughout the last few days, as Skylab's orbit dropped, America's National Aeronautics and Space Administration kept a minute-by-minute -minute check on the space station. Our Washington correspondent, Martin Bell, shared NASA's round-the-clock watch. The space agency in its control center here was ready to alert foreign governments, send out disaster relief teams, whatever was necessary. And in a tense and crowded NASA headquarters, as the moment of Skylab's re-entry approached, there was no knowing what would be necessary. No knowing either exactly when or where the spacecraft would re-enter. NASA's predictions had Skylab falling on a 4,000-mile path, first across the Atlantic and then the South Indian Ocean. It was last tracked breaking up over Ascension Island, and from then on its 500 pieces should have splashed down safely at sea. But they didn't, leaving Skylab controller Richard Smith to answer questions like why were the predictions out and was he at least surprised? Yes, because I thought it was going to break up a little earlier than that and uh, probably would not reach Australia. Uh, it apparently flew longer than we expected, broke up at a slightly lower altitude, and we were surprised when we heard that there were sightings of Australia because our last prediction uh, that Nora had made uh, said it should have uh, come down uh, slightly before reaching Australia, and we were surprised when we got that input. Why do you think it took longer to break up than you expected? A lot of variables in the upper atmosphere and uh, a lot of variations in the vehicle strength. Uh, the fact that if it breaks up at a lower altitude uh, could uh, very uh, easily mean that the heat spike could have been greater. Uh, might have, uh, could have very probably indicate less pieces, less mass coming down. Uh, and would, would, would have also meant a smaller footprint if it came and broke up at a lower altitude. Are you satisfied? Can you be satisfied with the way this thing has ended? I won't be satisfied until I... Uh, wait two or three days and there's no report of any damage or injury anywhere, then I would be satisfied. Can you take it there'll be no more uh, Skylabs or spacecraft making random re-entries after this? There will be spacecraft making random entries after this. There's a lot flying today that will random re-enter. I question that a large uh, manned spacecraft such as this would be built in this fashion today because we would not build it this way because of the techniques are different. And NASA's message to the people of Australia? Well, uh, if you saw it, I hope the site was uh, spectacular, and uh, I hope no report of any damage or injuries anywhere.
As you've been informed that we have had several sightings, reportings of sightings of, of uh, hot debris uh, overhead, or not necessarily overhead, but visible. Uh, some reports were up to 20 to 50 pieces. We've had no reports uh, of any uh, type, of any uh, uh, damage, concern, or anything of that nature. We've had no contacts, uh, uh, to my knowledge, this time uh, uh, from the Australian government through state channels. After five hours without any reports of injuries or fatalities, the mood in the control center gradually relaxed. Out of all the possible landmasses, Western Australia was considered the most ideal location for the impact due to its relatively low population density. The article in the Sydney's Sun on July 12th once again featured large, bold letters. The headline, Skylab Hits Western Australia Station, was followed by a local angle. It reported that the world was in awe of Skylab as it self-destructed and littered a remote sheep station in Western Australia. The only complaint from the station manager was that it scared his horses. Australia experienced a debris downpour that sparked legal repercussions. The town of Esperance imposed a fine of $400 on the U.S. State Department for littering. Despite the dramatic visual effects, the resounding whizzing sounds, and impactful hits on rooftops, the remains of Skylab miraculously made their way back to Earth without causing harm to anyone or resulting in significant destruction. The majority of the debris either disintegrated during re-entry, landed harmlessly in the ocean, or fell in remote, sparsely populated areas. Nine days later, Perth hosted the Miss Universe pageant and a piece of the fallen spacecraft was put on display during the event. Thank God and Charlie's team no one was injured, said Joe Kerwin. Kerwin, upon witnessing the destruction of his former home, felt a sense of relief that no one was harmed. He stated that the event had been anticipated for a while, so there was no room for surprise or regret. In summary, Skylab began breaking up as it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere just 10 miles above the surface during orbit number 34,981. Debris spread across a 40 by 2,400 mile footprint. In the weeks that followed, the largest piece recovered was a 180 pound piece of aluminum, believed to be a door from one of the film vaults, as well as two oxygen tanks and a few titanium tanks with nitrogen. These were found 275 miles east of Perth, near the town of Rolina, with the debris scattering up to 500 miles northwest of the town. Recovered pieces were returned to NASA, examined, and eventually mounted for display in various museums. Among the Skylab artifacts preserved for public viewing are the Skylab B OWS at the National Air and Space Museum, the Skylab trainer at JSC, and the three Saturn Vs that were intended to carry astronauts to the moon or future Skylabs. Just six years after leaving Earth, Skylab, or at least what remained of it, returned home. It was over. So when all is said and done, what did we learn from the Skylab program? 
Well, people can live and work in space. An astronaut can spend months in space and live out a healthy life upon return to Earth. Space motion sickness is a problem, but not an insurmountable one. Meaningful work can be conducted on spacewalks. A space station is a viable platform for research. And valuable astronomy and Earth observation can be conducted from space. Often overshadowed by the grand Apollo missions and the long-running space shuttle program, the true significance of Skylab in human space exploration might be lost in the shadow of its predecessors and successors. However, the fact that the lessons learned from Skylab are now taken for granted underscores its success in breaking new ground in human spaceflight. Prior to Skylab, countless elements that now seem integral to spaceflight remained largely unexplored. The progression from early ventures like Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo to extended habitation and work in space aboard the Space Shuttle and International Space Station resulted predominantly from the achievements of the three Skylab crews. Their accomplishments effectively established a foothold in the realm of space exploration, laying the groundwork for subsequent endeavors. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Caroline Annis filling in for Michael Annis, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 433 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Crashdown. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, March 2nd. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. The 2024 donor page is up and ready for your inspection. Please verify that we have your name on the page at the right level with the correct number of longevity emojis, if we don't, email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com so we can fix it. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 251 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers, but you have to put in the word archive. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. Now X. The handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow us on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. Afterthoughts? I have a few. First of all, Mike is sick. He has had a fever for days and he cannot talk. Poor thing. He is just miserable. And I am so sorry you had to put up with me today for the episode 433. 
Thanks for hanging in there with me. And I apologize for my mispronunciations. And you know what else? The tang ceremony is going to have to be postponed. I want Mike to be in with this, and I just didn't want to uh, do that without him. So we're going to postpone that to the next time so that everyone can be here. I find it so amazing how the work on Skylab missions set the stage for a successful International Space Station. So many little things that you do not think about that is difficult in microgravity, like tightening a bolt. Imagine that. I wouldn't have. And something like footholds and handholds make all the difference in accomplishing tasks efficiently. You know, I really enjoy sharing space innovations with my students. So many spinoffs that we enjoy in our day-to-day life that come from space exploration. And many times we do not realize how space exploration has improved the quality of life on Earth. I am still impressed with all those experiments that the astronauts did on Skylab and the ones that continue are continuing on the International Space Station. You know, one year we were vacationing in Florida and of course we had to stop by the KSC and they had this huge educator's resource room that um, all I had to do was show my ID that I was a teacher and they let us in and they said we could have anything we wanted. So we picked up all kinds of lithographs and experiment manuals and a lot of those living in space manuals were the ones from Skylab. I think we each walked out of there with uh, a box full of resources, and I was giddy. <laughs> okay, let's move on to financial support. Over the past fortnight, we received five new donations and pledges for 2024. I would like to thank Marco M. from California, who donated at the NASA level and earned 11 emoji for 11 years of support. Marco, Marco, we can't thank you enough. That was fantastic. Really appreciate that. Kevin H. donated at the Salute Skylab level and earned a Nova emoji. Paul K. from Wisconsin donated at the Gemini level and earned a Big Ten emoji. Ian C. donated at the Vostok level and earned a Rocket emoji. Devin M. has increased his pledge on Patreon to the Starship level and earned a Satellite emoji. Thank you all for your kind and generous support of the podcast. We really appreciate it. Our Patreon donors are currently at 222. Our total unique donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2024, have reached 245 with a goal of 400 for 2024. So, If you are enjoying this podcast that has been running now for 11 years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check, or you can also donate on Venmo or Zelle by using our email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. By the way, If you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. Today, I would like to give a shout out to all those who promoted to the space communications dish emoji for nine years of financial support. John B., 
Brendan C. William D. Andre I. Craig R. Andrew W. Andrew R. Tom C. Colm A. Harold D. Henry E. John L. James E. Simon N. Jorg B. David R. Christoph Z. Andrew. Eric B. Jim B. Patrick C. Don P. Colin S. Merrick B. John C. Matthew D. and Craig H. Thank you so much for nine years of support. We really appreciate it. If you are unable to support financially, it would help a lot if you could retweet the post on Twitter, now known as X, or repost my Facebook post or give a good old five-star review on your podcatcher like Spotify or iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. All supporters of the podcast are rewarded in at least four ways. One, the contributors' names are added on the donor's page at the level they chose to donate. There are longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions. That's explained better on the donor's page at spacerockethistory.com. Two, contributors receive a thank you message from yours truly. Number three, contributors are recognized on the podcast. And four, contributors are automatically entered in the fortnightly giveaway. And guess what's next? It's the giveaway. All right, the winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH archive magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Fraser Watson. Fraser Watson, if you will email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all who have contributed so far in 2024. Our sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, the, St- the Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, The Internet Archive, Flickr, and the BBC. And that's all we have for this episode. We'll try to have episode 434 posted on or about March 2nd. So long for now. <laughs>